Welcome, welcome, welcome. I would like to welcome you to episode 324 of the Unpopular Podcast. This is the man, the myth, the legend, Jalen Hunter. And here at the Unpopular Podcast, I'm not really asking you to agree with me. I'm asking you to hear me out. All year, I questioned why, Kate, why people thought Caitlin Clark was above and beyond the best player in college basketball as far as the women's side. Now, don't get me wrong. I knew and I know Caitlin Clark was great, and I knew she is a great player. I knew she – you can kind of consider her an all-time player as far as she's one of the best college basketball players we've ever seen. But I was questioning why what was – People seeing her accomplishments, and that is Caitlin Clark, her accomplishments, and what about Maddie uh, Segris, the 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 young lady from from Villanova? What about Angel Reese? Uh, she just, I think she has the most triple doubles in SEC SEC history, or double doubles. I'm sorry, in SEC history. What about Aaliyah Boston? She led her team to an undefeated regular season. So I was, I knew Caitlin Clark was great. I just didn't, I didn't know, or I didn't understand why a lot of people were putting her in a class of her own. She won, and shouts out to her, she won the uh, player of the year. But I was just wondering, yo, it, well, yeah, she's great. What about everybody else? Last night, Prove to me why she is leaps and bounds better than everyone in college basketball. And I'll and I'll and I'm I'll go as far as to say she's the best player in college basketball, men or women's. You see, South Carolina came into this game undefeated. I think they they were destroying people. Now if you look at the numbers, they weren't as dominant, at least in the first half, than they were in the second half all year. But they were still South Carolina. Don Staley was Don Staley. She, I, 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 I highlight this in a in a previous episode. She's one of the greatest college coaches we've seen in a while, and she has made a powerhouse down in South Carolina. So going into the final four, Iowa was a huge underdog. We just saw South Carolina run through everybody else in the tournament. You were going up against Aaliyah Boston, who was the former player of the year last year. You were going up against nothing but height, 6'5", 6'7", 6'5". And... While Iowa deserved to be a number two, while Iowa deserved to be in the final four, you can say that their path was not like South Carolina's path. And you can also say that if you look at the total team, South Carolina had a better team. While, yes, Kalen Clark was the best player and Iowa had the best player, South Carolina has the better team. But again, last night showed me and and, uh, proved to me, solidified why Caitlin Clark is 
the best player in college basketball and why she deserves all the praise, all the accolades. Now, yes, she was the first player in NCAA history, both men's and women's, to record a 30, no, 40-point triple-double in the Elite Eight. But I was like, hey, you know, that was that was a great game. Don't get me wrong. But that's not against South Carolina. You see, I, I suffer from what a lot of people suffer from. You know, I suffered from I didn't want to be wrong. I didn't want to be proved wrong. I didn't want somebody to prove to me that my assumptions were wrong. Because I was I was on that little boat, on that lone boat saying Angel Reese should be the player of the year. Averaging a triple or double double, 26 points, I think 16 re, 16 or 23 points, 16 rebounds, something like that. I was on that hill. I was on that hill, dying on that hill. I wasn't I, I wasn't, you know, negating what Caitlin Clark was, but I just didn't want to be wrong. But boy, Caitlin Clark was making it hard. Again, the first triple double, 40 point triple double in NCAA history in the Elite Eight. And now you're going up against the number one team, 36 and 0. You, your team, in my opinion, is drastically undersized and drastically undermanned. And not only do you slay the proverbial Goliath, you score 41 points. The first 40-point game in Final Four history. Not only did she score 41 points, she accounted for 75% of Iowa's total points. Iowa beat South Carolina 77 to 73. She accounted for 75%. She had 41 points, eight rebounds, six or no, eight, eight assists. I'm sorry, six rebounds. If you look back in the in the history of basketball, history of college basketball, when we talk about great players, they have moments. Steph Curry, who a lot of people are calling Caitlin Clark the Steph Curry, the women the woman or the female Steph Curry of basket of college basketball, but Steph Curry. You know, the, the NCAA run dropping 40, I believe it was against Georgetown. We, we you know, that, that run in Davidson. Anthony Davis leading Kentucky to the national championship. Carmelo Anthony leaving, uh, leading Syracuse to the national championship. Derrick Rose, even though they didn't win the incredible run that he had at Memphis. John Wall and, and that incredible t- Kentucky team, even though they didn't win, you know. Jimmer Ferdet, I don't know how many game winners he hit. Kimball Walker, leading the U- leading UConn to a national championship. Great players in college basketball history have moments. And 
what Caitlin Clark did last night was her moment. Now, don't get me wrong. She's had plenty of great moments. Again, she just, just around before she had recorded the first 40-point triple-double in college basketball history. But to go into a game where you were definitively the lesser team, you win. And you shine brighter than anybody shined on that court. Like, bright. Now, shouts out to South Carolina. They deserve all the all the accolades and all the praise in the world. Again, they went into the game undefeated. And I think the stat was going around before the game. In the second half, they're outscoring people over they're outscoring second or they're outscoring their opponents in the second half by like 500 plus that is an unreal stat that is that is one of the this South Carolina Gamecocks team is one of the greatest defensive teams we have ever seen in college basketball and if you don't believe me, if you think I'm Sison, go look at the numbers. They are one statistically they are one of the greatest college basketball defenses we have ever seen. So you're probably asking yourself, how the hell outside of Caitlin Clark, how the hell did South Carolina lose to Iowa? You see, all year South Carolina has been dominant when we talk about size. They have size galore. I mean, again, Aaliyah Boston, she is 6'5". Um, let's see. You have Card, what's her name? Uh, Victoria Saxton, she's 6'2". Um, Camila Cardoza, she's 6'7". They have height galore. In fact, even in this game, they out-rebounded Iowa 49-25. to And I think they had like 25 offensive rebounds. Card- Camila Cardoza, she had 14-14, and the tallest player on the court. Lynetta Amir, I apologize for messing up your name. She's 6'4". They had height galore. So they would dominate people in the paint. Like if you're getting in, if you're going in the paint against Iowa or against South Carolina, you're not scoring. And on top of that, you have Zaya Cook being, you know, good. You have Bria Beal. She's been great. And of course, they're, they have a lot of up, you know, a lot of seniors, a lot of juniors. Of course, they have some freshmen, but, you know. So all season, they've been dominant defensively. But South Carolina had two weaknesses all year. And if you don't believe me, go look at the game against Stanford, where I think they had to, they won in overtime. South Carolina has had two weaknesses all year. Shooting, especially shooting from the outside, three-point shooting. 
and defending the pick and roll. And while, yes, they have been dominant all year, those two problems that they have had, those two deficiencies they've had, never came back to bite them until last night. And you saw it from the jump. Shouts out to Iowa's game plan, man. They said, yo, we know we're undersized. Iowa's tallest player is 6'3", I think. We know we're undersized. We know that we have a height deficiency. So what we're going to do is we're going to crowd the paint. And we're going to force you to shoot threes. And if you beat us shooting threes, then hey, you beat us. And on the other end, we're going to put Caitlin Clark in every single pick and high pick and roll we can do. Caitlin Clark shot 15 for 31. She shot 17 threes. She made five, but she shot 17 threes. And what Caitlin Clark was doing and what, what Iowa was doing, they would put her in a in a in a high pick and roll. And the big, whether it was Aaliyah Boston, whether it was uh Cardoza, they just got lost. Or they just got lost in space because they're not good at the pick and roll. So Caitlin Clark would either would either dish it to um uh Monica Casino Casiano and, and again I apologize for messing the name but she had 18 points there was only two people in on Iowa's team that had double figures but again they would kick it down on the pick and roll kick it to uh Casiano, and she had an easy layup. It happened so many times to the point there's a there's a whole video going going around of Caitlin Clark looking at uh what's her name Raven um Raven Johnson looking at Raven Johnson at the top of the key and just like you you shoot that if you want. Like when I, there was so many times when I was looking like, yo, why the hell are they just not guarding three point line? And then I noticed, and then I realized South Carolina went four for 20 from three point line, four for 20. Now, yes, Raven Johnson did kind of hit her shots at the end. But she was 5 for 11, 3 for 6 from 3. Outside of that, outside of that, Bree Hall. Bree Hall went 1 for 4. Zaya Cook went 0 for 3. Bree Beal, 0 for 4. Aaliyah Boston, 0 for 1. Iowa went 28 for 57 for 49 percent south carolina went 30 for 77 39 percent south carolina and that's another thing when i was talking about shooting 
they're not the best three or free throw shooting team. They went nine for 13. Iowa went 14 for 14. They lost by four points. So, shouts out to Iowa, man. They were able to capitalize on South Carolina's deficiencies. The deficiencies they've had all year was just nobody was able or has been able to capitalize on that because South Carolina has just been that good. And don't get me wrong. There have been many people that have been great this year. But I just I don't think there was in there's anybody else in college basketball. And that's another reason why I just feel Caitlin Clark solidified her greatness. I don't think there's anybody else in college basketball, any other team that could beat South Carolina. Hell, if you go back to my predictions, I had South Carolina winning it all because of just how great they've been all year. But there don't get it twisted. Iowa won because A, a good game plan, and B, Caitlin Clark. In fact, A, Caitlin Clark, B, a good a great game plan on how to defend South Carolina. South Carolina was off all game. They had 15 turnovers. They they damn near doubled Iowa in rebounds and damn near trip quadrupled them in offensive rebounds and it didn't matter. Aaliyah Boston went Aaliyah Boston got into foul trouble the first half and still finished with eight and ten. Mm, mm, mm. Again, great basket all timers have moments. There's always there's always, you know, Twitter polls and IG polls about who is the greatest college basketball player and when they look at when they have you know they have Zion they have Brett Michael Beasley they have KD there have been some incredible college basketball players Caitlin Clark has solidified her name as one of them and she will this was an all-time moment. This was a moment that, like I said, Iowa slayed the proverbial Goliath. And I understand that Iowa was a two-seed and South Carolina was a one-seed. But the gap in which, again, South Carolina is the better team all around. Iowa just had the better player. And Iowa had the best player in college basketball. That is the only reason. And of course, and of course, you had 15, 15 turnovers and you went nine for 13 from the free throw line. You make, you make those four free throws as a tie game. You're going in overtime, you got a shot. There were a couple times that South Carolina, you know, South Carolina uh, took the lead back. And it was like, oh, well, here it goes. But no, Iowa just, Kaylin Clark kept hitting bombs after like 
three after three after three. I'm like, God damn. Shouts out to South Carolina for having an incredible season. But shouts out to Iowa for having the best player in college basketball, both men and women's, and making it to their first national championship. They won because they had the best player in college basketball, and she rose to the occasion, and the team got on her back. Again, two players on that team got into double figures. And there wasn't another player that got over seven points. And they beat the number one team in college basketball. Kudos to Iowa. Kudos to Caitlin Clark. The LSU-Virginia Tech game was a prime, a prime example of momentum and how powerful momentum can be not only how powerful momentum can be but how how tough it is to go against momentum and how tough it is to lose momentum you see this LSU game was a seesaw game to the point where I believe LSU was down as much as like 11 to like 13 points. And it was looking bad. First of all, shouts out to LSU for beating Virginia Tech 79 to 72. Again, everything was was everything was going Virginia Tech's way. I mean, Georgia Amore was was going even though she was she started off slow, she started hitting at big moments. Liz Kit uh Liz Kitley she finished with what eighteen and twelve <laughs> I mean Kayana uh a trailer she was going crazy she had a big three too Virginia Tech caught all the momentum especially in the first half and the beginning of the third quarter they they had all the momentum and you can you can feel you kind of felt it kind of felt like um That Virginia Tech just needed one more three, one more punch, and it was over with. Like they got up, they would have got up maybe sixteen, maybe maybe fifteen. I think the game would have been over with. But we talked about South Carolina's fatal flaw. You know, every team has a fatal flaw. Every team, and there's not a perfect team in college basketball. The question is, does, is your matchup able to capitalize? And, and again, it goes to momentum. One thing that we know about LSU is they are a momentum team. If they have the momentum, it is a tough, 
way to live. <laughs> if LSU has that momentum, hey, when you got Angel Reese going crazy, when you got Alexis Morris going crazy, that is a tough, whoo, that is a, a, a tough, tough thing to be on the other side of. And the same thing with Virginia Tech. When Virginia Tech has momentum and they're hitting three after three after three, when Georgia Amore is hitting three, she took 15 threes. When, when they're hitting three after three after three, it's like, ugh. But every team, like I said, has a fatal flaw. And I heard – Virginia Tech's fatal flaw. Actually, the game before this game, the Ohio State game in the lead eight, the announcer said something or the play-by-play person said something that kind of rang out red flags to me. And that was, I think the starting five of Virginia Tech contributes to like 95% of their offense, meaning they don't have a bench. And the reason why I said if they would have like crept, if they would have got the lead, like hit one more three, got the lead to like 16, 17, while yes, LSU can try to go on a run, but that is especially a second half deficit or especially a 16-point deficit in general. That's hard to come back from. I know you see a lot in the NBA, a team would be down 20, 25, but it's very rare that they come back because it's just tough, unless you just have snipers everywhere, but they don't. LSU does not. I mean, LSU hit three threes all game. But the fatal flaw that Virginia Tech had was they don't have a bench. And if you get their... A key player in foul trouble, say, I don't know, Taylor Soul in foul trouble, say, Liz Kitley in trouble, I mean, in foul trouble, you have an advantage. And what did you see? Taylor Soul had two quick fouls. Georgia Amore had three fouls. And... You saw a different LSU in the second half. Kim Mulkey and, and that and that LSU team, they smelt once they once they went on a like there was a point, I think, especially in the fourth quarter when there was like a 24 to 3 run. And when you have Angel Reese coming at you, when you have uh, Fluje, 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 I, I know I messed your name up. I apologize. Uh, when you have her, Johnson coming at you, when you have Alexis Morris coming at you, you get tired. So those threes that were hitting in the first weren't hitting in the second. You know, Liz Kitley, how, how many minutes did she play? She played 40 minutes. Look at it. the starting five. Taylor So would have played more, but she had she was in foul trouble. The starting five, 40, 
And once again, this game was a pure example of of momentum. Once LSU had seized the momentum, once they got it to within like five points, I said, oh, yeah, we got ourselves a game. Once they got it to about two, I said, oh, they're going to win this game. I said, and I said that out loud. I said, if LSU takes this lead, they won the game. And sure enough, as soon as they took the lead, they took off. Again, LSU is, is, is a momentum team. The thing that you see about a lot of younger teams and a lot of newer teams is they, fi- they need to find things to feed off. Because, of course, they have the talent and everything. But they, they're, you know, if they're new, they're young, they don't really... I'm not going to say they don't know how to play with each other, but they don't have like a well of plays to go to. They have to feed off something because one thing that we know about younger teams and newer teams is that if you you can break their confidence, you can break their soul. Because it's like, well, damn, this is not our day. And like I said, if you would have got the lead to 16, 17, it would have been over. It would have been over. We saw that against. We saw that with LSU and uh, South Carolina when they played. South Carolina jumped on them early, and while LSU fought back, South Carolina kept them at bay. I know it's crazy to think. I think it was thirteen points. I know it's crazy to think, but thirteen points is not enough, especially when you don't utilize your bench. And LSU again, LSU or shouts out to South South to Virginia Tech. First time they made it to the final four, but again, when you're playing, when L- LSU likes to play a physical brand of basketball as and likes to play a fast pace, when you have someone like Angel Reese that can dominate the paint, again, she had 24 and 12. Then you also have somebody like uh, Alexis Morris who is fast, quick, twitchy, and she can also shoot. You, your, your, your two most dominant positions are, are the two most important, which is the paint and the point guard. And, I mean, everyone else fell in line. You know what I mean? Again, Johnson, I know I'm not going to say her first name because I messed it up. She, what did she do? She had seven points. Um, Ladasia Williams, she had 16. Everyone played their part. And it really wasn't until the second half. In fact, the in fact, <laughs> in fact, late third quarter, all of fourth. Once LSU seized the momentum, they didn't let it go, and that's the problem with that. Was, that's one of the biggest problems with Virginia Tech. They had all the momentum in the first half. They just, they just, I, I don't know. It was probably fatigue, but they, they just couldn't hold on to it. And LSU, they was they got okay. Let me see. LSU, right? Well, LSU did win the first quarter. LSU lost the second quarter, lost the third quarter, and outscored Virginia Tech in the fourth quarter, twenty nine to thirteen. More than doubled Virginia Tech in the fourth fourth quarter alone. They scored eighteen points. 
to Virginia Tech's 25 in the third quarter and more than doubled them in the fourth. Momentum. One game, the Iowa-South Carolina game, you saw what happens when the best player is on fire. There are some times when a player is the best player and she's on fire and you can't stop her. And her greatness is feeding off other people. And she's getting other people involved. You saw what happens when a great when a, a, a player is just bigger than the moment or is, is, is overcome or is rises to the occasion. That's what you saw against South Carolina and Iowa State or Iowa. What you saw the LSU and Virginia Tech is one team having momentum, losing it, and one team not having momentum. And and once they grasped it, it was over. And on top of that, the team that had momentum had arguably the best player on the floor or two of the three best two best two of the best players on the floor, which was Angel Reese and Alexis Morris. So I'm excited, man. I am excited. The national championship is uh, on Sunday, tomorrow at 3.30. Here's the thing. Going into it, of course, we know my prediction. I had South Carolina going up against LSU. So I thought LSU was good enough, and I, I kind of felt they were good enough to make the national championship. And I think, you see, the difference between South Carolina and LSU, while, yes, both great teams, and I think South Carolina is the best team in college basketball, they just ran into Caitlin Clark. LSU doesn't struggle too much. They don't struggle with the pick and the high pick and roll. You are going to have to shoot against LSU. You're going to have to shoot and make shots. And that's kind of what we saw for 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 a little bit. That's kind of what we saw Virginia Tech do. LSU the difference between them and South Carolina is LSU can kind of shoot a little bit. Not maybe they're maybe not the best three point shooting team, but they can kind of, you know Alexis Alexis Morris again she went she went all like she her speed she had a, she was eleven for twenty seven against uh, Virginia Tech, and while Aaliyah Boston is still a great player, incredible incredible player, she and she's dominant. Don't get me wrong, she's not as aggressive as Angel Reese's in the paint. Um, but you got Caitlin Clark, man, and Caitlin Clark is on a run that I we have never seen again to go to have a forty point triple double in the Elite Eight, and then to match that with having a forty one point game against the best team and arguably the best defense in college basketball history in the women's side. I don't. I, I don't. Mm-hmm. I want to say LSU. 
I want to say LSU is going to win it all, but what we're seeing from Caitlin Clark is something that I don't think we've ever seen. So I have I I'm going to pick Iowa. I'm picking Iowa because Caitlin Clark has turned me into a believer. And that's funny because now I pick Caitlin Clark more than likely LSU is going to win. But I have Caitlin. I have Caitlin Clark. I think Iowa is going to win their first national championship, and I think Caitlin Clark is going to, like she's been doing, show why she is the best player in college basketball. I do think she's playing against the second best player in college basketball, and that is Angel Reese. But Angel Reese, her aggression, especially in the paint, is 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 why. Yes, we did see. South Carolina dominate on the boards. We didn't see Aaliyah Boston, probably because of foul trouble. We didn't see her dominate in the paint with the aggressiveness and the aggression like Angel Reese did against Virginia Tech. So I have Kaitlyn Clark and I have Iowa winning the national championship now. So there you go. Let's move forward. So later on today, the men's Final Four will be conducted. And an article I read and saw first questioned if this is going to be the norm for the Final Four. When I mean this, I mean mid-majors or, you know, no Final Four or a Final Four that doesn't have a one seed or a two seed. Is this going to be the norm for the Final Four? I mean, the Final Four has a nine seed, two fives, and a four. Now, yes, I don't. I think UConn was drastically underseeded, but uh, I'm not going to say that this. And when I mean this, I mean like multiple mid majors. You know, a Florida, a Florida Atlantic, San Diego State. I don't think that that's going to be the norm. But what I do, and and I talked, I talked about this. I talked about this ad nauseum last episode with the parody and the transfer portal. I do think that you're seeing a level of of uh equal equalness. Because of NIL and because of transfer portal, now the best players don't have to go to a North Carolina, don't have to go to a Duke, don't have to go to a Kentucky, a blue blood school. You can go to a Florida Atlantic. You can go to a Kansas State. You can go to an Alabama and still thrive. So while I don't know of the mid, you know, I don't know of mid majors are going to dominate like they did this year. But I can see, you know, uh, a multiple Final Fours that doesn't have a one seed. Because, like I've said these last few years, just because you're the one seeds aren't drastically better than a five seed or, or a seven seed like they used to be. Like, when North Carolina was a one seed, I think the last time, Going into the, <laughs> going into March Madness, going into the tournament when North Carolina was one seed, they were drastically. I think that was the year that they beat uh, Oregon in the national championship. They were one seed and they were 
by far the best one seed. I think they were the number one overall seed going into uh, that tournament, and they they dominated all their way all the way to um, the national championship. They beat Gonzaga, and they had this big dude. I forgot his name, and then they beat Jordan Bell and Oregon. Gone are those days, you know. Because again, when you look at Purdue, they lost to they lost to um F, FDU, Alabama. Like there wasn't a there hasn't been a dominant team in college basketball in a while. I think the last dominant dominant team was what Virginia that had Kyle Guy and and uh, DeAndre DeAndre Hunter. Is that the last dominant team? I don't know. So while I don't know if this is going to be the norm as far as, you know, no one's going to the Final Four or a mid-major like Florida Atlantic rising to the top, I do think that because of the transfer portal, because of NILs, because of just the sheer level of talent, throughout college basketball. I do think that we'll see a lot more upsets and a lot more parity in college basketball. But like I said, the final four will be later on today. And I am going to give my prediction about who is going to, you know, ultimately win the or make it to the national championship. So again, you have Florida Atlantic and you have San Diego State. The this team, these two teams are are have two drastically. Let me say this: they're drastically different when you talk about styles of play. That is San Diego State and Florida Atlantic, but they're similar in a lot of ways. You see, one team is incredibly dominant when we talk about three-point shooting. Florida Atlantic is one of the best three-point shooting teams in the nation. They get most of their points from the three-point line. I mean, Jonnell Davis is averaging 14 points a game and he's shooting he's shooting 30 37% from the three-point line. Like and that's their best player, of course. Uh, they what they do is they they get up a lot of threes. While they're not the best defensive team, they they over they they overcome that with their their incredible offensive firepower that they have. They also have a seven foot dude, uh, Goodlin. He he's averaging seven or. Seven points a game, pretty much. They can put points on you in bunches, and we saw we've seen that all throughout the tournament. Hell, we saw that against Kansas State. They or was it Kansas State? Yeah, Kansas State. They can put they can put points on you in bunches. Hell, we all, we even saw that against Tennessee. San Diego State, on the other hand, they're not the most proficient offense in the in the in college basketball they only average 72 points a game or 71 and a half points a game however they are one of the best and the most stingiest defenses they only they only give up 57 points a game while 
uh, Florida Atlantic gives up 66.5 points a game. And Matt Bradley is leading leading the charge with Florida Atlantic. I mean, no, with San Diego State, which is, you know, averaging 12.5 points a game. So the question is, who do I think is going to win this game? This is a style of two different type teams. You have a, a team that likes to run. You have a team that, that gets up a lot of shots, a lot of threes. And if they're hitting their threes, it's a wrap. Or... The team that, while they're not the greatest offensive team, they're one of the best and stingiest defenses in the in college basketball. If you look at their last few games, right? Florida Atlantic had to go against Memphis. They had to go against FDU. They had to go against Tennessee and Kansas State. They scored, going from Memphis up, they scored 66 78, 62, 79. San Diego State, they had to go against uh, Chattanooga. <laughs> they had to go against Furman, Atlanta, or Atlanta, Alabama, and Creighton. They scored 63, 75, 71, and 57. Florida Atlantic has been on a magical run. While they haven't had to go against the same caliber of teams that San Diego State has, they have they are the massive underdogs. They're the, they're the lowest seed remaining at nine, and they had to go they had to go against Tennessee, which a lot of people and Kansas State, which had what Marquise Noel, and he put forty on their head or thirty. I'm sorry, thirty on their head. I'm going to go against San. I'm going to pick San Diego State because they've had the harder run and they ha- they're the bigger team and usually what you see is the team that controls the boards in this in this you know in, in, in these type matchups are usually the team is usually the team that wins. Now yes. Uh what uh Vladisaw Goodlin who is, of course, for Florida Atlantic is 7-1, and he's averaging six rebounds a game or six or seven rebounds a game. Um, you still have Nathan uh, Mensa that is averaging six points, six rebounds a game, and he's 6'10". Six, six, I just think one of the biggest reasons why Kansas State didn't beat Florida Atlantic is they went cold at the worst time, the absolute worst time. I think they went, there was a good five to six minute stretch where they didn't score. And you can't do that against a team, especially a team like Florida Atlantic that puts up a lot of shots. Um, San Diego state. While I don't think that they're going, we're going to see an offensive explosion. I think this is outside of Tennessee. San Diego State is the is the best offense or defensive team that Florida Atlantic has played. Like I said, Tennessee's a, a a good defense, but San Diego State is on a different level as far as defense that Florida Atlantic has, well well played. I mean, all their all their team all the te- games they played has been against offensive teams outside of Tennessee. And to me, San Diego State has the better win 
out of both teams because they beat Atlanta, they beat Alabama. So I think I think San Diego State is going to win and play in their first national championship. I think it's their first. So I think the it's been an incredible run for uh the I think it's been an incredible run for Florida Atlantic. It's been an incredible run for San Diego State as well. But I just think the defense uh that San Diego State pre- presents against Florida Atlantic, which will be their best, the best defensive team that the Owls have played. I think that uh, San Diego State is going to win and make it to the national championship. And the next game is the big game. That is Miami going against UConn. To me, <laughs> if you look, man, this is this is the equivalent of the the David against Goliath at least right now in the tournament. I think that if UConn wins and they go to the national championship, I think that'll be the the most I mean, it'll be tough for either FAU or you know, um San Diego State to beat them, but you're talking, see, basketball is about matchups, you know. Sometimes it doesn't matter what the better team is. It's do you have, like, one of the biggest reasons why Miami beat, you know, Houston and beat Tennessee is because they were bet they they matched up better with those teams because of you know Isaiah Wong and Wong and and the offensive firepower that that Miami presents because their guards can score in bunches and on top of that they have a really they have a really let's say aggressive they have really aggressive guards and they have really aggressive forwards. I mean, when you have what Norchad Amir, he he's averaging he is six seven averaging a double double, thirteen and ten. Then you have Jordan Miller, who's six seven, fifteen and six. And those are those are just, you know, those, those Jordan Miller, you can kind of put him as a guard. You have Najil Pack, 13 or 14 points a game. And again, you have Isaiah Wong, who's averaging 16 points. So this is going to be a very tough game for UConn. But I said that basketball is about matchups. And this is the first team that Miami has played in this in these playoffs or in this tournament. That is drastically larger than them. Now, yes, Texas is a is Texas isn't that big of a team. Houston is okay, but their best player, I mean, Marcus Sasser, who's good. They're not the biggest team. Houston is. Neither is I. Uh, neither is was Indiana. UConn is the biggest team that. The Miami Hurricanes have played this entire tournament. And, <laughs> I mean, their best player, uh, 
Amada, no, a man, a man, a, <laughs> Jesus, Sonogo. I apologize for saying your name wrong, bro. It's late. The man's averaging 17 points. He's 6'9", averaging 70. He's 6'9", but he plays bigger. He plays like a, uh, he plays bigger. 17 points, six, eight rebounds. And on top of that, they're, again, they're guards. One guard, Naheem uh, Allen, Allen, he's he's 6'4". And right now, the dude, the the player that's been leading them this entire tournament, which is Jordan Hawkins, is shout out Gaithersburg, Maryland. He's six five, averaging sixteen points a game. So you have six four, six five at the guard position, going against. Let's see, going against Isaiah Wong, who's six four, and. Peck, who is six foot. Now he, he has a cannon though. I'm not gonna lie to you. Yeah, that man shoots forty percent from three point line. Jesus. I think that both things are true. I think that for this Miami Yukon game, both teams have huge advantages over the other. While I think Yukon is the biggest team that Miami has faced. I think Miami's ability to, because if you look outside of Gonzaga and Mark, outside of Gonzaga, the the UConn hasn't played that good of offense. I mean, they played Iona, they played St. Mary's, and they played Arkansas. We know Arkansas is offensively challenged. Their best team, now they did destroy Gonzaga, it was Gonzaga. So with you know the energy and the the speed that Miami presents, and when I say speed again, you have Jordan Miller who, who can probably match up against Jordan uh, Jordan Hawkins. When you have uh, Isaiah Wong, he can get to the mid range and, and hit, and then you have Pack that that'll hit from three. Neither team has seen neither team or both teams have advantages. And while, yes, if you look, while I said it's the proverbial David against Goliath, when you look, one is the fifth seed, one is the fourth seed, we can all say now looking at how this tournament has fared that UConn was drastically under or under under seeded. I just that I cannot get the I mean, the fact I can't not only can I not get the Gonzaga win out of my head, they have destroyed every single person they played in this tournament. They beat by Iona by 24. They beat uh, St. Mary's by 15. They beat Arkansas by 23. And they beat <laughs> they beat Gonzaga by 28 points. It's hard for me to unsee that. It's hard for me to unsee how Jordan Hawkins has been their best player, especially how he's shooting from the three-point line. And then you have Sonogo just dominating the paint. And the size just overwhelmed people. And while, no, the Miami is not 
the the biggest team, they do have matchup problems in in, in Jordan Miller had the best game of his career against Texas. I think he had like 27 points. I don't know if he's going to be able to duplicate that. And they needed that because remember they were down by like 13 points to Texas. They're going to need they're going to need to duplicate that against UConn. I don't know if they could be able to do this. Do that. I don't know if Isaiah Wong can while he can score with him, I don't know if he's going to be able to keep up with the physicalness that Jordan Hawkins brings. Or that Allen brings. So I have UConn making it past uh making it past the Miami Hurricanes. So I have San Diego State and I have UConn in the in the national championship. And seeing as though the national championship is Monday, I will give my prediction for the national championship. Again, college basketball, basketball in general is about matchups and while I think that Miami presents a lot of problems for UConn and vice versa, I don't see the only problems that I see <laughs> San Diego State presenting for UConn is San Diego State plays good defense. But again, UConn is drastically bigger than majority of the key players for San Diego State. And again, the way that they're they're firing on all cylinders offensively, that is UConn. I have UConn winning it all. I think we I think UConn has been the best team since the start of the since the start of the tournament. And they're they're riding an incredible season. Even though they, they did kind of have like a, a skid in the beat the half you know midway through the season they were able to get back on track and they've been on fire since yeah they did lose to uh marquette in i think their conference tournament they have been going crazy and i i have uconn winning it all so on the women's side i have iowa being led by caitlin clark i have them winning it all and i think uconn is the best team and has been the best team for a good minute now in college basketball as far as the men's side so i have uconn winning the national championship let me know what let me know who you guys have again when you see this the women's or the men's game is going to be later on tonight so we'll all watch together but let me see what you have so let's move forward so, we're getting towards the end of the regular season for the NBA, and you're you know we're starting to see who is who is who, and and seating is all crazy on the West and the East. Is, we're kind of we kind of have a better a better understanding of who you know who is good, who is who who's going to match up against who. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to give my top 10 teams currently in the NBA. Which teams are good? Which teams do I think can can uh, who who cracked my top 10? Uh there are some gr- some teams that should have cracked my top 10 but didn't like the the Clippers. I would love to put the Clippers in my top 10. They did just beat uh Memphis even though I think the next night they lost to Memphis. But Paul George is hurt. You don't know what you're going to get out of Russell Westbrook on a nightly basis. You know you're going to get energy, but you don't know where the, how that energy is going to contribute. Is it going to contribute to winning or losing? You don't know what you're going to get out of Kawhi Leonard. Is he going to play? Is he not going to play? There's a lot of uncertainties with this team. 
if you if if the team is all fully healthy, then yes, of course they're in my top ten, and and yes, they are good enough to contend for a championship. But that's a lot to ask when we don't even know when Paul George is coming back. We don't. I think the reports are that he might be able to come back in round two. Well, I think they need to make it out of round one for that. So I couldn't put the Clippers in my top ten. Uh, the Miami Heat, they've been they've been kind of struggling. They've been on a roller coaster ride all year, so I, I couldn't put them in my top ten. There's a lot of there's a lot of teams, obviously, but let me start with my number ten. I'm gonna go from ten to one. Uh, number ten, I have the Golden State Warriors. Kind of like the Miami Heat, the Golden State Warriors have been on a a a roller coaster ride of a season. I mean, if you don't believe me, just look at their the their when their record at home in a way. Away they are one of the worst. I think they're like 9 and or maybe like 10 in in like 30 or something on the road and at home I think they're like 31 and 7 or 34 or 7 or something like that. They're one of the best home game or home teams and one of the absolute worst uh Away teams, and I it's it's hard for me to put them above anybody when you have those kind of splits. I mean, yes, one of the biggest reasons why I have, I mean I know they did just beat uh, San and San Antonio last night, and I know they had a big win against the um, Bucks, even though Giannis didn't play. They also had a big win against the Seventy Sixers, even though James Harden didn't play. But it's it's hard for me to count out a team that still has Steph Curry, still has Draymond Green, still has Klay Thompson, still has Jordan Poole. I will say this. I do not think this team, and that is the Golden State Warriors, I don't think they have a chance if Andrew Wiggins doesn't play. I think the defense that he presents and the matchups that he that he's able to, you know, neutralize on with his defense is going to be needed, especially when we talk about the West, especially when we talk about some teams like the Suns or the or the, the Memphis Grizzlies. But I just if he's not able to return because, you know, he's away for family, uh, personal reasons, if he's not able to return, I do not. have. I don't think Golden State has a shot of winning. If he does return, I think they have a shot of making it or, or repeating. You just never know. But I have Golden State at number ten. At number eight, I have the the Cleveland Cavaliers. This team has been one of the most surprising teams, especially going into the season to now. I mean, of course, when they went into the season, they didn't have Donovan Mitchell. Or now that they have Donovan Mitchell, they're like one of the best teams offensively. They're great, and you're you're going to see this with another team on this on this list. Offensively, the Cavs are great. Donovan Mitchell's good. Evan Mobley's good. You still have uh, Darius Garland. Like, they are a good offensive team. The problem is that doesn't really lend itself to the defensive side, and they don't really have consistent offensive scoring outside of Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland. Yes, you have Karis LeVert, but they're, they're only two really consistent scores, and... I don't know how that's going to fare in the playoffs, especially when they play a team like the Knicks, because they're kind of shaping up to look like they're going to play the Knicks in round one. I don't know when when you have you know Jalen Brunson playing the way he's playing, Julius Randle. I know he's hurt with an ankle injury, but when he comes back, that's just tough. When your two primaries or your pretty much only primary scores is Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland, two 
undersized guards. You know what I mean? So, but I, I they have been great offensively as a whole. So I have them at number nine. Number eight, I have the Knicks. The the Knicks have been have been a surprise story this entire year because it's it's hard to root for the Knicks because you never know what you're gonna get. You always get like a really good Knicks team, and then all of a sudden it's like, what the hell just happened? You know what I mean? Um, but again, Jalen the the emergence of Jalen Brunson on this team has been incredible, and Jalen Brunson. He just had 40, 40, 48 the other or last night against <laughs> against the Cavs. Him, Emmanuel quickly has been good, and of course Julius Randle, he's been good. This this Knicks team is 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 scary. I I do want to hold out because again we know what happens or what has happened when the Knicks have played um in the playoffs. Kind of you know we hell we saw it against Atlanta last year, but I have the Knicks in number number eight. Number seven, I have the Grizzlies. You see, the Grizzlies are is an interesting team because they can be as good as two or three. Then they can be as bad as seven to ten. Um, they did win uh, the, you know, back-to-back against. Well, they did lose to the Clippers and won against the Clippers. But, and of course, you have John Moran. You have a J, a Triple J, who I think is probably going to be the defensive player of the year. But this team is so inconsistent. And what makes it even worse, of course, has been documented from time to time to time to time to time. And that is they talk a lot. They talk a lot. So it kind of put they talk a lot like they've won something. So it kind of puts the target on their back. And while, yes, it is a young, rugged team, I think the loss of Brandon Cooks is going to be huge for them. Um, Now, yes, Stephen Adams should come back. Uh, maybe before the playoffs or in, in the middle of the playoffs, but losing Brandon Cook was huge for them. And I think that is going to rear its ugly head, especially in the playoffs. But you do still have John Morant. Desmond Bain is hitting shots. I think he had a, a 20, uh, 20 bird, damn near 30 bird against the Clippers last night. But I have, you know, I have, I have the Grizzlies at seven. Number six, I have the Kings. The Kings, first of all, shout out to the Kings. They finally make the playoffs. I think the last time they were in the playoffs was like 2003 or 2001 or something like that. Um, so they ended like one of the longest droughts in sports history as far as playoff droughts. Again, And, and I, I, I like the Kings. I think Mike Brown should be coach of the year. Uh, Keegan Murray just set the record for most threes by a rookie in NBA history. Uh, uh, DeAndre De'Aaron Fox has been great DeMontis Sabonis has been great both all-stars again the problem with the Kings is they are statistically the best defense best offense in the league they're statistically one of the worst defenses and once you get to the playoffs you're then that's one of the biggest question marks I have with the with the Nuggets are, is your defense going to be able to hold up, especially because there are going to be games where your offense isn't clicking? Can you lean on your defense? And as we've seen with the Kings, you can't. So I like the Kings, but I just don't know how they're going to fare with their defense being, being as bad as it is. So that's why I have a number six. Number five, I have the Suns. Now, they are good enough, at least 
they have, of course, Kevin Durant, who's arguably one of the best players in the league. Actually, inarguably one of the best players in the league. You have De- Devin Booker, who's who's crazy. But they're undefeated with Kevin Durant in the lineup. Two problems, two question marks I have. How is Chris Paul going to hold up? Because Chris Paul has not looked good majority of this year. Like, he... You, you know how they say Father Time is undefeated? Yeah, Chris Paul looks like he is uh he's getting up there. And how how once you go to the bench, how how are they gonna can your bench get get you a couple points? Can your bench get you a win? And I haven't really seen that with the Suns. The Suns are incredible with Kevin Durant. They're incredible with uh what's his name? Devin Booker, but you know, DeAndre Ayton, can he hold up in the paint? If they're firing on all cylinders, they're good enough to win a championship. That's, that's you know. But I need to see more. And we've also really never seen a team that has been created or assembled at the, at the trade deadline go ahead and win a championship. We've seen some instances, but... And Kevin Durant is one of those rare cases where you can drop him anywhere, i.e. Golden State, and he flourishes. But... Do this do the Suns have enough to carry them to the promised land, which is of course a championship? I don't know. So I have then number five. Number four, I have the Nuggets. They have obviously uh MVP candidate uh in Nikola Jokic could win his third straight MVP. Jamal Murray has been up and down this year, but he looks like he's catching his stride now. Aaron Gordon has been incredible. I think he deserved to be an all-star, even though he didn't make it. Michael Porter Jr., still Michael Porter Jr., and he's been playing well. Bruce Brown has been playing well. This team it's is probably one of the best, probably the best team in the West. The problem is, and it goes back to the Kings, how does their defense fare? They're, are they good enough defense? When we see Nikola Jokic has to be a primary defender, yeah, that ain't it. Jamal Murray's not a defender. Why did I say a defender? Like <laughs> not a defender. Their 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 best defender is probably Bruce Brown. And I I don't know how that's gonna fare. In fact, we've seen how it was fair in the playoffs every year. I mean, every year they they run up to it, they run into a team that one is good defensively and two can exploit them at their weakest points, i.e. Nicole Jokic's defense, Jamal Murray's defense. And and hell, Jamal Murray didn't really play last year or didn't play last year with Golden State, but you saw Golden State exploit Nicole Jokic's defense, which is which ultimately helped Golden State get past the Nuggets. So while the Nuggets, yes, they have to prove more in the playoffs that they are the team because they're they're one of those teams where they're constantly good constantly they're consistently good in the regular season but once they get to the playoffs again one when defense needs to be more important they don't have it and i need to see more but again they do have nicole Jokic, who could possibly win his third straight mvp i have them at number four at number three i have the 76ers the 76ers kind of give me pause but i do have them at number three and i do think that they currently are the third best team James Harden has played great all year. I think he arguably could have deserved to be an all-star. Tyrese Maxey, he hasn't taken the leap that I would like, but he has a solid third option. Of course, Joel Embiid, he possibly is MVP. He he could be the MVP. 
the problem, the, the thing that I have with the, 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 the pause that I have with the 76ers offensively, offensively outside of, you know, outside, it actually is both. It's offense and defense outside of, you know, J- Joel Embiid and, and James Harden and I guess Tyreek's Maxey. Can they maintain, can they keep up the offensive fiber? Because, I mean, you see, once James Harden goes to the bench, once Joel Embiid goes to the bench, it is a drastic drop-off on both offense and defense, especially when we talk about Joel Embiid. I think that they lean too much on James Harden and Joel Embiid. But again, Joel Embiid is is an MVP candidate, could possibly win his first one. And we know James Harden. While James Harden isn't prime James Harden, probably due to injuries and everything, James Harden is still James Harden. But I do think that, you know, Tyrese Maxey has played good. Melton has played pretty good. I, I, I just can, can you know, they're going to lean on, they're going to need Tobias Harris in, in, in a playoff series. Is he going to be able to come through, which he hasn't proven to be able to do. Uh, but they have been incredible most of this year, and I have them as a number three team. The number two and one team – um, can be interchangeable for me. And right now I have the Milwaukee Bucks at number two. And the only reason why I have the Milwaukee Bucks at number two is because I just saw the, the Celtics beat them by 40 points. One thing that you're not used to seeing when we talk about the Bucks is they know who they are. And they don't really get out of character they don't really get and when i mean out of character i'm not talking about like emotions or anything i'm saying they know that they're a good three-point shooting team so if they're they're, if they're shooting if if they aren't hitting in the first quarter or first half they know that they're going to eventually fall they know that they are a, a, a rugged defensive team when they have Brooke Lopez, who is a defensive player of the year candidate. When you have Giannis Antetokounmpo, who's won a defensive player of the year, I believe. Um, when you have, of course, Grayson Allen. When you have Drew Holiday, who's one of the most underrated defenders and underrated players in general in the league. You know what you're getting. They know who they are. And now that you're seeing an emergence of Drew Holiday, again, he just dropped 51 the other day. You still have Giannis, who is the best player in basketball, in my opinion. The the question is, how how much can they fare if if Chris Middleton isn't on his A game. It looks like Chris Middleton is coming back to form, especially when we get to the playoffs, and that was one of the biggest reasons why they lost, that is the Bucks, why they lost a year ago because Chris Middleton, you know, was injured. But how are they if if how can they fare and, and we know who Giannis is and we know what Giannis is gonna do. Can they beat the Boston Celtics if, you know, Chris Middleton isn't on his A game or if the Drew Holiday isn't on his A game or if Giannis isn't on his A game. I don't know. But I do know that they are one of, if not the best team in basketball. And they've been that all year. Then the only reason why I have them at number two is because they just lost to the team who I have at number one, which is the Boston Celtics by 40 points. 
Boston, what you see is it's kind of opposite from the Super Bowl hangover. And what I mean by that is usually the team that loses the Super Bowl, they don't they don't have an incredible season the next year. Like, yes, the the Bengals were really good this year, but they're more of an outlier. Actually, you saw how the Bengals started compared to how they finished. They were kind of more of an outlier. Usually the team that loses the Super Bowl the next year don't really play that well. I mean, hell, you remember when the Patriots lost the Super Bowl to uh, the Philadelphia Eagles? Or Philadelphia, yeah, Philadelphia Eagles. You remember, hell, the Atlanta Hawks. <clears throat> I mean, excuse me. The Atlanta Falcons ain't been the same since they lost the Super Bowl against the Patriots. Usually the team that loses the Super Bowl do, does not have a good year. You kind of see the same thing with the NBA NBA Finals. A team that loses the NBA Finals usually doesn't have that good of a season. Boston is the outlier. Boston, they, I think they were one of, if not the best team last year, and they were the better team in the NBA Finals. They just ran into an, a more experienced team, which was Golden State, a team that's been there before. Their best players have been there before, and, of course, they ran into a Stephen Curry. I think Boston's on a mission, and I think Boston has shown with – the the play of Jason Tatum, who is an MVP candidate, with the play of Jalen Brown, with Al Horford being credible. The only pause I have is Grant Williams. He's kind of regressed this year, but you know you still have Marcus Smart. I think Malcolm Brogdon has been a welcome, uh, a, a welcome addition to the team. Hell, even Blake Griffin getting important minutes. I, I just think Boston has been firing on all cylinders, especially when we talk about defensively. They've been one of the best teams. The only uh, the only pause I have outside of Grant Williams is can their coach, who's a first year coach of uh, Missoula, can he? How is he going to be in pressure situations in the playoffs? You know, usually we see coaches unless they have like an all time great team which the Boston Celtics could be. Uh, how is he going to fare? But outside of that, I have Boston as the best team in the ba- in basketball right now. They they just beat um they just beat this the Bucks by 40. They came back the next night and beat or last night and beat uh the Jazz. They they are the best team. They're led by Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown and I think that they are the team to beat right now. So that's my top ten. Well, you know what's also crazy now I think about it? I did a whole top ten. Oh, never mind. <laughs> I just did it. But there are there are teams that's on the rise, man. There's teams on the rise and there's teams that are falling. Like, who would have thought that the Dallas Mavericks oh wait, I did. <laughs> I knew the Dallas Mavericks weren't gonna be that good, even though you have Kyrie Irving there incredible offensively. They don't play defense. But the, the Lakers are rising. You know, the Lakers, they're the pieces that they got in the trade deadline. And, of course, LeBron James coming back and everything. Or LeBron James being back and Anthony Davis uh, playing through injury. Didn't he play? He played through an ankle injury. It was crazy. They're, they're, they're surging. They're in the play-in. Um, the Timberwolves are, are playing better. They were kind of on the out, like right on the outside uh, of my top ten. But... You know, those are my top ten. Number one, Boston. Number two, 
the Bucks, number three, 76ers, four Nuggets, five Suns, six Kings, seven Grizzlies, eight King, uh, Knicks, nine Cavs, and ten Golden State Warriors. So let me know what you feel. Let me know what your order is. Who do you have as the best team? So we have number five. <laughs> let me know. <sighs> I'm going to stay on this for a little bit. Uh Opening day for the MLB baseball was the other day, I think Thursday, and you saw, I've I've been a real proponent of, or I've been very vocal about my disinterest in in baseball and why I don't like it. I think the games have been too long. I think that the season, which is 162 games, I think that that's too long, especially when you have a team that is already out of playoff contention halfway through the season. So then you got to sit through, what, 81 games of meaningless baseball because you have absolutely no, you know, absolute, your team has absolutely no chance of winning. It, it, it just base again. These games were too long, especially being two and a half, three hours, three and a half hours just to end one zero, just to end two zero, two one. It 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 was a it's a it's a it was a brand that while yes, America's pastime, this and the third, but it was losing popularity, losing its 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 allure. Yes, going to a ballpark. It uh, is an experience that you know is is great, but again, that sh- that shouldn't be the only thing because a lot of people, some people can't afford to go to a ballpark, so that shouldn't be the only thing. And even even going to a ballpark, the games are still three and a half hours, so it's like, why the hell? What are we doing here? So when they when they introduced the pitch clock, you know, some people were upset about it, some people were happy, and. Opening night or opening day to now, which is what, day three or day four of the season, you're seeing the benefits of the pitch clock. Games that are two hours, slightly over two hours, some games that are even under two hours, they're just more exciting to watch and they're more palatable to watch especially since there's still a six, 161 62 I'm sorry 162 game season the shorter games more runs more hits you know again there's a reason why the most exciting thing on all-star weekend when we talk about basketball is the three-point contest people like to see shots people like to see threes there's one there's a reason why there's a lot of times the home run derby gets more views than the World Series because people want to see, you know, home runs. People want to see hits. You're getting that with a pitch clock, and you're you're getting more excitement. You're getting, you know, fans to want to. You know what? You know what the problem is with baseball. Baseball has had a tough time getting new fans. New. New fans. Yes, you have the old fans. Yes, you have the diehard baseball fans. They have had a tough time getting new fans because, again, before the pitch clock, what was the allure? The fact that you can go to a ballpark and sit there for three and a half hours to watch a a 3-1 game 
or you see the best player or the yeah arguably the best player in baseball be on a team that has absolutely no shot of winning anything or even making it to the playoffs it's like they had a tough time like imagine that imagine Patrick Mahomes on the 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 Houston Texans imagine the best players in football, right? Imagine Joe Burrow on the Commanders. Imagine uh, Lamar Jackson on what? The <laughs> Lamar Jackson on the Giants. Like, you want your best players to be highlighted in the playoffs. And I don't know Patrick Mahomes, as great as he is, could have led the Houston Texans to the playoffs. Now, imagine Steph Curry on the Detroit Pistons. Imagine LeBron James on the Houston Rockets. Imagine what Giannis Antetokounmpo on... The Washington Wizards. What I'm saying is, when you have a player like Shohei Otani, when you have a player like Mike Trout on the Angels, who have who have had no shot of making it to the playoffs, it's like, how do you promote, how do you market your best players when you're not going to see them in the playoffs? The inconclu- my, my conclusion is that baseball has had a tough time. Um drawing in new fans and building excitement outside of opening day you know opening day is of course exciting for teams that have a shot to make it and you know diehard fans but what the pitch clock is introduced and and speeding up the games and making it more likely to have you know more runs and more hits and more home runs i saw the level of excitement that I haven't seen in a while surrounding baseball and surrounding, you know, the new pitch clock and, and the new penalties that, that, you know, catchers get in and you're just seeing more of a, more of an excitement, an excitement that we haven't seen in my opinion for a while when we talk about baseball. So while people question and criticize the pitch clock, all I'll say is, Look at what we have. And it's we're getting a better product. And, and and as we're seeing, there's more excitement for the sport than there has been in a while. And lastly, before we go, man, I wanted to just shout out uh, North Texas. North Texas for winning the NIT. I know that you hear me talk crap about the NIT. You see a lot of teams. Hell, North Carolina, uh, my school, or the school that I, I enjoy, my favorite basketball team. You saw that they declined the NIT. There's a lot of crap that gets put on the NIT because, of course, it's not March Madness. It's not the Nas- you know the national tournament or the, the basketball tournament or the the NCAA tournament it, it it's it's had the it's it's got the moniker you know not in tournament uh not invited to the to the tournament uh 
Um, but one thing that I will say about the NIT, and while of course nobody wants to be in the NIT, they everyone would of course love to be in the NCAA tournament. The NIT is able to showcase teams that may, you know, mid majors or, or or teams that prob probably are have the record to make it to the national tournament or NCAA champ NCAA tournament, but maybe not the the caliber of wins. Uh, it's able to showcase, you know, your your teams that probably not one of their games were were on national TV and now they're playing in a tournament and now they're winning a champ winning a the NIT. Uh so I did want to say shout out to North Texas for beating UAB in the NIT tournament. Mid major two mid major teams playing in the NIT and it it they were showcased on they were showcased on ESPN. You know what I'm saying? Uh, some of the teams that made to the NIT. Now again some of the bigger teams, they no one wants to go in there. No one wants. Hell, North Texas and UAB didn't want to be in the NIT. I'm sure every team that made it there wanted to be in NCAA tournament, but a lot of them couldn't make it. You saw teams like Michigan. Michigan played in the NIT, and they didn't win. Uh, North Carolina was invited. They didn't make it. But it, it is able <laughs> – the, the the good part about it is it's able to showcase talent and teams that we wouldn't get to see in March, you know, in March Madness or in the NCAA tournament. So shouts out to the NIT and shout well, whoa, hold on. Shouts out to North Texas for beating UAB and winning the NIT. And there you have it. That's been today's episode of the Unpopular Podcast. I appreciate you guys. If you want an Unpopular Podcast shirt, hoodie, sweater, long sleeve joggers, the link is in the description below. I have multiple different colors, multiple different designs. Get your Unpopular Podcast merch today. Also, please subscribe to if you're listening. Please subscribe to if you're watching. It definitely, definitely, definitely mean a lot to me. Uh, please subscribe to the socials. Please subscribe to uh, what? Uh, Instagram, TikTok. It means a lot, man. All the links are in the description below. All the links are in my about page on the on the page. It means a lot. Uh, and until next time, much love.